Good evening and welcome to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. This is your host, Dr. Scott Bay, your psychiatrist with all the latest mental health related news, including everything about the mind, the brain, human behavior, how to feel well emotionally, how to cope better with stress, how to make sense of media reports about the latest research into potential new treatments and insights into the causes of mental illness, along the way trying to better inform the general public about mental health issues and to reduce the stigma associated with having a psychiatric diagnosis and needing treatment for it, bringing that to you with more than 20 years of experience in the practice of psychiatry and without the hype and distortion of such messages as is so typical with other media sources. Welcome back to Psychiatry Today. This issue was pre-recorded for airing first on Wednesday, January 20th, 2016. Hope your year is going well so far. Um, You know, as I just did in the intro to the show, every week I always mention that one of my goals for this podcast is to help alleviate the stigmatization there is uh, that people without mental illness have about those who do, and also the stigmatization that people with mental illness have about themselves. And along those specific lines, I found a wonderful article that I'm very anxious to share with you, very much looking forward to sharing with you. It's rather long. It, in fact, may take up the whole podcast. Hopefully, I'll be able to finish it. But in any case, I just want to say here, it's called 11 Things Only Someone Taking Antidepressants Understands. So for those of you who are taking or have taken antidepressants, this is something you'll very much relate to. And if you are not or have not ever taken them, most likely you know someone who is or, or has taken them, and uh, this will hopefully give you more insights into those people's experiences. Uh, so what I'm going to do is just read the article um, as from the author's point of view. Okay, So um, she wrote the article <clears throat> uh, in the first person. Her name is Sarah Klein, and uh, it appeared in uh, a recent edition of Everyday Health. Right, so here it goes. 11 Things Only Someone Taking Antidepressants Understands by Sarah Klein. There's a spin class I like here in New York City and the instructor happens to have diabetes. Periodically in the middle of class, sometimes barely even slowing her pedaling feet, she'll check her blood sugar with a quick prick of her fingertip. Occasionally, she'll explain herself before or after class. Other times, no explanation necessary. I'm sure others like me who have worked out with her more than a few times have started to hardly notice. Therapists and doctors and writers like to draw an analogy between the constant vigilance required of people with diabetes and that of people with depression. A person might need to be on insulin for the rest of her life, and there's no shame in that. Depression, too, the thinking goes, can require lifelong treatment. 
Why should our perception of that medication be any different? Still, I can't imagine this spin instructor popping off the cap of a bottle of Zoloft in front of 30 sweaty strangers. It's not a perfect analogy. We know now that depression is perhaps infinitely more complicated than the comparatively well-understood fix for type 1 diabetes or replacing missing insulin. But it still makes the point so clear it nearly punches you in the stomach. We wouldn't judge someone for treating a physical illness with medication, so why do we judge someone for doing the same for a mental illness? Diagnosing depression can be just as challenging as treating it. I'm confident we're slowly moving away from this stigma, but we're not quite there yet. Whether it's because a person on antidepressants doesn't necessarily look sick or we simply don't understand the benefits antidepressants have to offer, it's obvious we need more honest discussion of these meds and who they work for and how. Considering the most recent data available suggests 11% of Americans over the age of 12 take antidepressants, and that was in 2008, we owe them a little more compassion and understanding. In an attempt to help make things clearer and help us all be even just a little more accepting, here are a few things only people taking antidepressants truly understand. <clears throat> now, she says it's going to be 11 things. Uh, first, I just want to say in her introduction, I couldn't agree more that depression is comparable to diabetes insofar as that it's a hormonal imbalance. And instead of the pancreas not producing enough insulin or the body not responding properly to insulin, it is a hormonal imbalance in the brain. And she's also right in saying the fix of diabetes for treating with insulin is a lot simpler than the fix of treating depression with medication. Um, <clears throat> and she's also right to call all people out who would unfairly judge someone taking medicine for depression when they wouldn't do the same for someone who has diabetes. So let's get into her things only someone taking antidepressants understands. One, antidepressants are not a cure. Depression is thought to be a noxious combination of genetic, environmental, and psychological f factors that leads to profound feelings of sadness, hopelessness, pessimism, irritability, and fatigue, among any other possible symptoms. Antidepressants, the medications most commonly used to treat depression, affect a number of brain chemicals called neurotransmitters which are thought to be involved in regulating our mood. While meds can make a drastic, sometimes life-saving improvement in how a person is feeling, antidepressants don't always mean the end of bad days, or even so-so days for that matter. Freelance writer Lynn Shattuck likens antidepressants to her contacts. I'm super nearsighted. I need contact lenses to see, she says. Antidepressants aren't a happy pill. They just clear the fog for me. They help clear my vision and enable me to see a little more. She's been on and off meds for two decades to help manage depression and anxiety. My antidepressants are just one tool in my toolbox, she says. I don't think any one thing for someone with depression is necessarily the answer. For Rob O'Hare, an actor, comedian, and web producer 
who also happens to be my dear friend, antidepressants haven't made negative thoughts vanish, but they've helped speed them along. Without medication, I might feel devastated, he says, but with medication, I won't feel awful, and then the feelings will pass, and that's actually a drastic improvement. He was first diagnosed with depression in 2003, and while he recognizes that he still harbors negative thinking patterns, they have a chance to get better now with medication. Another thing that people with depression understand uniquely about antidepressants. Number two, you don't have to be on them forever, but you might be. It can be tempting to take antidepressants for a month or two, feel like you've improved leaps and bounds, and figure you no longer need meds, says psychiatrist Michelle Tricamo, an assistant professor of psychiatry at Weill Cornell Medical College in New York. That's not something we want to see, she cautions. Just like you want someone to finish the whole course of antibiotics to prevent relapse, we don't want anyone to prematurely discontinue antidepressants either. Typically, Trucamo says, your doc will want you to be relatively symptom-free for about a year before you talk about stopping the meds, she says, to make sure the changes in how you're feeling are going to stick. What's even more important than how long you've been on antidepressants is that you don't try to go off them alone. A doctor can help you expertly taper your dose to wean you off with as few withdrawal effects as possible. We'll get to more on withdrawal later. After that weaning period, some people might carry on medication-free. Antidepressants can function like that ever-elusive perfect face wash that clears up our acne after a few weeks and you're set. O'Hare imagines. But for someone like me, depression is chronic, he says. I just have to manage it. I'm going to pause here again. That section makes several excellent, excellent points, much like the expert uh, that the author consults, Dr. Tricamo at Cornell. I couldn't agree more. I always tell my patients, as far as duration of treatment, once you get well a year at that point, and then we talk about tapering off, And again, the analogy is perfect. Finishing the bottle of antibiotics so that the infection doesn't come roaring back with resistant bugs, it's just like taking your year or so's worth of antidepressants. And then she cites the example of her friend who says, for me, it's chronic, I have to manage it, I have to stay on medication indefinitely. Okay, next, I think we're up to number three. If you do stay on them forever, it's not because you're addicted. Shattuck says she was constantly establishing timelines in her head for when she'd be able to ditch antidepressants. It took years for her to come to terms with the fact that she might take them for the rest of her life. I believe this is part of my genetic makeup and something I need, she says. Her attitude is key in understanding long-term antidepressant use. People who benefit from the meds are taking them because they still provide those benefits. There's no high, there's no cravings, Dr. Chukamo says. Antidepressants can cause withdrawal if you stop them abruptly, which is probably where this misconception came from, but it in no way means you can't stop using them. Very important points in that section as well. Uh, Again, the last point, 
because there are side effects. If you stop, it does not mean you're addicted because you need to take it indefinitely because you have chronic depression uh, with a strong family history indicating it's a part of your genetic constitution or you've had multiple severe episodes and you relapse each time you come off of your antidepressants uh, or you've had a serious suicide attempt and felt well when you got on medication. All of these are reasons why you might need to stay on them forever. But you are no more addicted to your antidepressant in any of these situations than is the person who has to take insulin to control diabetes or the person who has to take thyroid hormone to control an underactive thyroid. We'll pause here and continue with this article after this commercial break. You're listening to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. Be right back. The disease of addiction is a life-altering challenge, not just for the person suffering its effects, but also for the family and friends who support and love the one caught in its grasp. What should be the course of treatment? Who is the best person to render treatment? And what is the best place to go for the care that is needed? We know that you want answers to these and many more questions. Call 770-696-9862 and speak to a representative of the Atlanta Healing Center. They can tailor a program specifically designed to address the needs of the person suffering with an addiction or give you guidance as to where that help may be found. Information is the key, and the trained staff at AHC is here to assist. If you wish, you can also get more information on the website located at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. This is Daryl Pullis inviting you to listen to America's Homegrown Veggie Show right here every Saturday morning at 10 Eastern Time. Great guests, great tips, and valuable information about growing your own vegetables, fruits, and herbs. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's D-O-C-S, the number four, patientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to Psychiatry Today with your host, Dr. Scott Bay, your psychiatrist with all the latest mental health-related news. And on this week's podcast, sharing with you a wonderful article written by Sarah Klein in Everyday Health, 11 Things Only Someone Taking Antidepressants Understands. Okay, so unless I'm losing count, we're up to number four. It's not always an easy decision to start taking them to begin with. She says, There are critics out there who say antidepressants are simply over-prescribed, but the process of beginning antidepressants doesn't start with some haphazardly written prescription. Docs frequently recommend therapy first, Dr. Tricamo says, which can result in significant improvements for many people with mild to moderate depression. When she's considering who might benefit from meds, Dr. Tricamo evaluates how much depression interferes with a person's daily life. If adults are unable to get to their jobs or leave their homes or can't support themselves, 
These might be times to use a medication, she says. Some people still have hang-ups about starting meds, even if therapy hasn't helped. The biggest internal battle was the idea that I should be able to feel better by myself, her friend Shattuck says. If I just did enough therapy or herbs or whatever, I could treat myself naturally. Such defeating self-talk, she says, is a non-starter because depression is in and of itself a distorted way of thinking, she says. It makes it really, really challenging to get yourself out of that on your own. We wouldn't suggest a person with a broken leg simply pulled herself up by her bootstraps. Dr. Tricamo emphasizes the importance of working through these concerns and making the decision to try antidepressants a collaborative one. They're the ones taking the medication after all, she says of her patients. You can't force them and since you're not there to give it to them every day, you might not even know if they're taking it. Thoroughly explaining the risks and benefits can help a person understand why meds are important and how they might help. If you don't get them to buy into treatment, treatment is going to fail, she says. I also thoroughly agree with the points made in that section. Um, I tell my patients all the time, if I didn't think that medication were needed, I wouldn't prescribe it, and as much as it might seem that doctors cavalierly do so, I do think it's a fairly drastic measure to put someone on medication. And, and uh, again, agree with Dr. Tricamo's comments, the author cites, that it shouldn't be done unless there's very severe functional impairment. Okay, moving on to number five, things that only people with antidepressants can understand. Side effects can be harmless or hellish. Anyone who has seen one of those horribly cliché staring out a window while it's raining TV commercials for antidepressants knows equally how horrible is the length of the accompanying list of potential side effects of the meds. Many of them, like weight gain, insomnia, nausea, low libido, delayed or vanished orgasm, and diarrhea, to name just a few, sound entirely unpleasant. Certain meds come to have a reputation for one side effect or another, but there's no real way of knowing what you might feel when you start one or how long they'll last. Nausea, headaches, or a jittery feeling usually vanish within the first couple of weeks, Dr. Tricamo says, but weight gain or a dampened sex drive might be harder to get rid of. Unfortunately, it's something we can't really predict. Side effects aren't based on the dose of the medication or really anything else measurable or adjustable, she says, although they are likely to be worsened by drugs or alcohol. While the unpredictability is certainly frustrating, it shouldn't be prohibitive. We can switch antidepressants, and we usually do find one that isn't so harmful in these ways, she says. It's kind of a guessing game, O'Hare says. He ended up in the emergency room after what was likely an allergic reaction to Lexapro when he first tried it in 2003. He's since tried a handful of others with varying rates of success. Cymbalta and Welbutrin both made his depressive symptoms worse, he says. 
effects her made him feel something he can only explain as medicated. He gained weight on Remeron, but describes the experience more like his body no longer felt like his own. He's currently feeling some improvements on Prozac, about to visit his psychiatrist for the first time in a month. He stayed away from any antidepressants thought to mess with libido. He guesses everyone has their own threshold for tolerating different side effects. Some weight gain might not bother one person while it's a deal breaker for others, for example. If a drug was going to diminish my libido, then I just wasn't going to deal with that, he says. Among the drugs I haven't taken are some I haven't taken for that reason. Uh, again, just to pause here and make some points about that section about the side effects. Yes, um, the experience of side effects is very unique for any given patient. So it's important not to take that long list that you hear and think, oh, is that what's going to happen to me? If I take this, no, that's what may happen. And again, the points are right on target about the physical annoyances usually go away in the first couple of weeks. But if weight gain and low sex drive happen, uh, they're likely as not to stick around longer. And uh, as she says, it's somewhat of a guessing game. However, I think we can take some of the guesswork about choosing medication if you're lucky enough to have any kind of genetic relative who did well on one antidepressant or another. That's the one that you should try. That takes some of the guessing out of the picture. And then just to comment on this one particular patient, this uh, friend of the author's, um, <clears throat> he had bad problems on Cymbalta and Welbutrin, uh, and Fexer didn't feel so good for him either. Uh, this means to me that he doesn't do well on medications which act on the norepinephrine pathway. That's the one thing that all three of those medications have in common. And again, sometimes it is a case of trial and error where we have to learn things about someone's unique brain chemistry uh, by accident. Okay, number six of the 11 things that only someone taking antidepressants understands. But you're not about to become a zombie. The idea that antidepressants totally change your personality is understandable, Dr. Trucamo says, since they are tinkering with your brain. The persistent, I won't feel anything fear, however, is unwarranted. Antidepressants are designed to help you return to your former demeanor, she says, not transform you into some always up or totally out of it new you. There's some need to preserve a sense of your own identity or some kind of self-integrity or a version of yourself that being medicated might alter, O'Hare says of this hesitance of some people to take antidepressants. Of course, if you do feel like meds are flattening you, talk to your doctor who can likely suggest another option. Again, let me pause here to make some points about this. Antidepressants absolutely are not meant to alter your personality or demeanor. In fact, they are meant to restore your normal demeanor, which depression or anxiety or both have altered. All right? So it's the illness that alters your demeanor, not the treatment. And as this uh, section of the article says, if your medicine does make you feel dull or flat, or somehow not yourself, then that means either the dose is too high in most cases, or it just isn't the right 
antidepressant for you. And in either case, some sort of change in your medication should be made once you report these unexpected, undesired side effects to the prescribing doctor. Number seven, there's usually some trial and error involved before you find the right one. And here the author expands on one of the points made in a previous section. When Shattuck first started medication, she went on Paxil and had horrible nightmares. Zoloft gave her heart palpitations and sent her anxiety through the roof. But just because one antidepressant makes you, say, sweat profusely, doesn't mean they all will. It's worth giving a few a try if nothing feels quite right at first, Dr. Tricamo says. Even if you try one and feel nothing, no uncomfortable or dangerous side effects, but no real improvement either, don't give up. With dozens on the market, odds are the first one isn't the right one, O'Hare says, and frankly, it could take years and might get discouraging to find one that helps. He was so frustrated by his experience with one drug in 2014 that he decided he wouldn't try anything for a while. I didn't want to go through that hunt, he says. The process of starting a new antidepressant over and over again isn't ideal, but it's worth it to him. It's hard, but when you have major depression, after a while, it's just not worth being unmedicated or untreated anymore, he says. It's so worth it to not feel the way you do when you're suffering through major depression. Let me just comment on that section. Again, like we talked about before, something that helps to narrow down the choices and eliminate some of the trial and error is if you have any genetic relative at all, even a fairly distant one, like a cousin or an an uncle, a niece, nephew, any genetic relative who's had some success with a given antidepressant, that's the first one you should try if you've never tried one. Um, Or likewise, if a close genetic relative has taken something and they had a horrible experience with it, you should avoid it. Now, there's another fairly new development that may help narrow down the choices. There is genetic testing. Um, What the testing does is it looks at the enzymes in your body that metabolize most of the known antidepressant drugs on the market. It also takes a look at some of the characteristics of your serotonin receptors in the brain, and it uses these bits of information to predict which antidepressants would or wouldn't necessarily be a good fit for you based on your body's metabolism and your genetics of your brain physiology. Now, it's by no means a Rosetta Stone, and in some cases it doesn't provide any useful information at all, unfortunately. But in some cases, it can help narrow down the choices and give your doctor some useful information. We'll be right back after this next break to continue with the rest of the 11 things only someone taking antidepressants understands. You're listening to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. Be right back. Affordable health insurance was the promise of Obamacare, but for many, the government mandate caused more problems than it solved. This is Dr. Elena George from Medicine on Call, and I want to tell you about a truly affordable alternative allowed under Obamacare, Liberty HealthShare. 
Liberty HealthShare bypasses doctor and hospital panels, giving you the freedom to choose. And with a maximum of $500 out-of-pocket per person and 100% coverage up to $1 million per year per occurrence, you can rest assured knowing you and your family are protected. Coverage starts as low as $107 per month and also includes dental, vision, pharmacy, and holistic care. Liberty HealthShare puts you back in charge of your health. Visit them online at libertyoncall.org. Again, for a true affordable alternative to Obamacare, visit libertyoncall.org or call toll-free 1-800-714-6993 today. Don't be hoodwinked by the left who wants you to believe the fairy tale that we can power America on butterflies, rainbows, and pixie dust. I'm Marita Noon. Get the truth about energy on my show, America's Voice for Energy, only on America's Web Radio. Perhaps you are struggling to cope with the disease of addiction. If not, you probably know a family member or friend that needs help in battling the cravings and the personal and professional damage done by the effects of drugs or alcohol. Get a pen and paper and be ready to write down the following. These are the issues that the trained staff at the Atlanta Healing Center address and treat every day. Their doctors and counselors with over 40 years of practice in the field of addiction can treat the suffering individual in a thoughtful, compassionate, and experienced manner and guide him or her along the path to recovery. So call 770-696-9862 and speak to a knowledgeable staff member about how you or your loved one can be helped to enjoy a better and healthier life. More information is also available on the website at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. You're listening to America's AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to Psychiatry Today with your host, Dr. Scott Bay, your psychiatrist with all the latest mental health-related news. And so far this week is a wonderful article called The 11 Things Only Someone Taking Antidepressants Understands, written by a writer who suffered from depression herself, um, takes medication and uh, consults with friends of hers and a physician that she quotes uh, for the article. And we're up to number eight on the list, and that is... Stopping or switching, that is, antidepressants, can be a process with a capital P. If only it were as simple as filling a new prescription. To avoid those aforementioned withdrawal symptoms, which can include anxiety, irritability, dizziness, headaches, muscle aches, and chills, doctors carefully and methodically wean patients off antidepressants to stop or change meds. Shattuck says the last time took about a month to gradually taper her dose with her doctor. She felt flu-like fatigue and more tearful than usual, as well as what's come to be called brain zaps, a feeling likened to an electrical current momentarily pulsing through a person's brain. Some people notice the effects of tapering almost immediately, Dr. Trucamo says. Some lucky others have no problems whatsoever. Now, I would like to pause here and put uh, my own information on top of what the author talks about. With switching medications, 
Um, <clears throat> I think that you know what I have found to be most successful is if someone is switching from one medication to the other, what usually helps to minimize, but not necessarily eliminate, these uh, withdrawal symptoms is to start the new one before the person is completely off of the old one. In other words, it goes something like this. Lower the dose of the one being discontinued. When the dose of that one gets low enough, start a very low dose of the one being started, the new one. And so there might be a period of one or rarely two weeks where someone's taking uh, of the last very low dose of the one being stopped and the starting very, very low dose of the one being started. And by overlapping the two for a week or so, it tends to, again, minimize, hopefully eliminate, but not always eliminate, at least minimize these withdrawal symptoms. The strategy is called a cross-titration. It sounds a little bit aggressive, but if it helps to minimize those awful side effects from just stopping a drug, even carefully, then it's a benefit. I will also say, unfortunately, it is often the case, especially when the antidepressant is not being managed by a psychiatrist like Dr. Tricamo or myself, that the medications are tapered too quickly um, and sometimes switched abruptly. I have seen many patients who come to me and tell me uh, that their prescribing doctor said, oh, well, we'll switch your medication, just stop the one you were taking and start the next one the next day. Well, what do you think happens? Of course, the person feels awful, and what gets lost in this situation is their bad feeling because of abruptly stopping their previous medication, or is it side effects from the new one? And of course, because of how the situation was handled, there's no way to tell. So again, <clears throat> switching and stopping medication can be difficult, but it needn't be if the doctor is aware of how to do it in a nuanced and patient fashion, and the patient also is willing to cooperate with that. All right, number nine. Yes, yoga, meditation, and getting more sleep can help that doesn't mean antidepressants don't. Dr. Tricamo has a patient whose mother continuously tells her she should quit the meds and take up yoga and meditation instead. There's probably nothing wrong with any of the lifestyle tips offered up by your neighbor, your uncle, or that blogger you follow on Pinterest. But that doesn't mean antidepressants are out. Maybe she should be doing yoga and meditation, but that doesn't mean she shouldn't also be taking Zoloft and going to therapy every week, Dr. Tricamo says. In fact, all these tools might work better together if antidepressants are the contact lenses that clear the fog so you can actually get yourself to the yoga class. Even if people mean well, this try yoga instead mentality is rooted in stigma, Dr. Tricamo says, against both psychiatric illness and its medical treatments. As long as there's reason to believe there is a biological basis for mental illness, however, 
there's no reason to believe there is a biological treatment to go along with it. If you have asthma and you can't breathe, are you going to try to just meditate through it, she asks. O'Hare does his best to tolerate this kind of advice because he knows his friends mean well. I'm not about to criticize my friends for whatever bits of helpfulness they've thrown my way, he says. I'm grateful for any and all of it, even when it's repetitive or nonsense. I cleaned it up a bit. He used a different word. But in any case, I also want to pause and comment on this section. Um, It is, in some cases, at least irresponsible and stigmatizing, and at worst, life-threatening, when someone tells someone they shouldn't be on medication for depression. I am not exaggerating or making what might otherwise sound like a hyperbolic statement when I tell you that many people have died of suicide from their depression when they took the perhaps well-meaning but ill-founded advice of those close to them telling them they should not take their medication. So I am one of those who say, yes, don't let the medication do the whole job. Absolutely, you should exercise. Absolutely, you should take up yoga. Absolutely, you should meditate. In fact, I tell many of my patients that if I think about all the people in my practice who are doing the best while taking their medication, they exercise regularly. They eat well. They make sure they get enough sleep. And the ones doing the best also do things like yoga and meditation. So sure, do all of it. Because as we've heard in the previous sections of this article, let's face it, the medications aren't perfect. They can't fix everything. They often cause collateral damage with side effects. And it may be difficult to find the right one. So I feel strongly, even if you're on the perfect medicine, has you feeling great, no side effects, you should still be doing all of those other things because they all work. But even if you take diet, exercise, yoga, and meditation and you roll them all together, if someone is seriously ill with depression, and by that again, I'm talking about completely functionally impaired, then none of that all taken together will match the benefit of medication. However, if you add all of those to medication, there is no question that the person will feel better. All right, number 10 reason uh, or, or thing that only people taking antidepressants can understand. You can maybe even safely take them while pregnant. Now, this section certainly is a little more controversial. First, I'm going to read uh, what the author has to say, then I'll give you my own take. She says, Starting or growing a family can be a tricky decision for anyone, but women who use antidepressants have an extra layer of complication to decode. Questions about how antidepressants might affect a developing fetus have long been up for debate, and the most recent news is the meds don't seem to have lasting cognitive or behavioral effects on children born to moms who use them. Know what does leave a lasting impact on the little guys? Moms who are depressed. My midwives kept saying, it's just 
it, sorry, it's not just the safety of my unborn baby that we had to consider, but my safety and mental health, Shattuck says. She stayed on antidepressants during both her pregnancies, a decision she calls the most difficult part of my journey with depression. Her son, now six, and her daughter, almost four, are both healthy. They didn't go through any of the scary things you find if you Google antidepressants during pregnancy, she says with a chuckle. She was racked with guilt, though, a feeling she doesn't imagine she would have had if she had needed meds for, say, diabetes at the time. A lot of people have to take medication during pregnancy for physical ailments, she says. I don't know if I would be as hard on myself as I was about antidepressants. I couldn't possibly agree with that section more. Uh, Number one, the negative effects of maternal depression on the developing fetus and the newborn child are obvious and well documented, including intrauterine growth retardation, which is what it sounds like it it, it does in English, and also uh, impairing the mother-infant bond after uh, the child is born, slowing development early on. Uh, There is also, I think, an overemphasis on the risk of postpartum depression, and not enough attention is paid to the fact that if a woman has depression, there's a 50% or more chance of risk of relapse of depression during pregnancy, Uh, never mind the postpartum period, which, of course, there's also risks. So when you weigh the known obvious consequences for the baby of maternal depression versus the lack of any definite side effects of the medication, there seems to be more weight in favor of giving the medication consideration when it means keeping the mother's mental health and well-being intact for the sake of carrying the pregnancy successfully to term, feeling well in the postpartum period, preventing postpartum depression, and having a, a successful life with the newborn. Not an easy decision to make, uh, but it certainly is a lot more nuanced than people think, and there's evidence uh, that the medication does more good than harm. All right, we'll finish up the article when we come back. From this next commercial break, you're listening to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's D-O-C-S, the number four patientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. Hello, I'm Dr. Mike Karuchak. Have you ever wondered what doctors talk about amongst themselves? If you do, join us on the Doctor's Lounge and hear the doctors' conversations amongst themselves. Join me and my co-host, Dr. Hal Schertz, every Thursday morning, 8 to 9 a.m. Do you have problems with sinus pain and pressure? Do other people smell things that you don't? Have you lost the joy in eating because food just doesn't taste like it used to? Is your nose always stuffy, no matter what you do? 
Maybe you have sinus or nasal polyps. These are generally benign growths that occur from chronic sinus infection or allergies that are either undertreated or have not been treated at all. At Peachtree ENT Center, we specialize in minimally invasive balloon dilation sinus surgery and correction of a deviated nasal septum and turbinate reduction surgery that can be done in the office. We use a state-of-the-art equipment so that you can see the problem. You will be a partner in your care, and together we will decide the course of treatment. We believe in old-fashioned medicine where we take the time to fix the problem, not just medicate the symptoms. You can rest assured that all options will be offered before surgery is recommended because Peachtree ENT Center is where patient care counts. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to Psychiatry Today with your host, Dr. Scott Bay. And we're about to wrap up what has been a wonderful article that I found, really enjoyed sharing it with you so far. It is the 11 things only someone taking into the presence understands. And it's just uh, a wonderful encapsulation of all the issues that people taking these medications struggle with. From the point of view of patients who deal with these issues, as well as a doctor who prescribes them. So we're down to the last one, number 11, and that is, sure, there's a lot we don't entirely understand about how they work, but they work. You've likely heard the relatively straightforward theory that depression is caused by an imbalance of the neurotransmitter serotonin in the brain. If that were the case, Drugs called selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, or SSRIs, which work by keeping more serotonin available in the brain, would obviously be an easy solution. Unfortunately, it's pretty clear today that depression is a much more complicated story than that. Serotonin is not only not the only neurotransmitter involved for starters, and we still don't entirely know how antidepressants actually work. We know depressed people's brains look different on imaging tests, but we don't necessarily have all the answers from science yet, Dr. Tricamo says. Whether we prescribe the meds, take them, or know someone who does, we'd probably all be more comfortable if we did have more answers. Antidepressant bashing critiques range from there are too many people on them who don't need them to they don't work at all and patients only benefit from a placebo effect. There are significant questions we should be asking about who needs antidepressants, why doctors prescribe them, and how the insurance industry approaches mental illness, Maura Kelly wrote for The Atlantic in 2012. But that, of course, doesn't mean that antidepressants are dummy pills that have no real effect. And it's crucial that depressives, many of whom are suspicious of medication, realize that. Shattuck is just glad they're even an option. Until really recent history, P. 
people didn't have access to medication that could help them if they had depression, she says. I've come a long way from thinking, what can't I do this on my own? To a place where I'm thankful I live in a time where it's not quite as stigmatized and there's access to help. And that concludes the article. And what a wonderful article, again, written by Sarah Klein for Everyday Health. I'd like to make several comments about this last section. Uh, It's right on target when she says, well, what you hear and read about a lot where it concerns antidepressants is that they correct an imbalance of serotonin in the brain. In fact, that is fairly accurate as far as what their immediate and direct effects do. Unfortunately, most often what you hear and read about is wrong because most often that is grossly oversimplified and what you'll hear or read is that they increase levels of serotonin. Uh, The notion that state of depression means you have low serotonin and that medications increase it thereby correcting the depression is a gross oversimplification and patently false. And in fact, there was uh, an article that was published in an actually respected scholarly medical journal uh, a couple of years ago uh, talking about how this was uh, the false theory of how antidepressants work. Well, the whole premise for the article was itself false because this is not the message that people who invent and and make and prescribe antidepressants give. This is the false message given by the media, actually. Um, <clears throat> people who know anything about how antidepressants work know that this idea that they simply increase serotonin, which is deficient, is totally false. Now, um, it's also an important point she makes that, well, if that were the case, then they would work all the time, and we know they don't. Um, she says that serotonin is not the only neurotransmitter involved. That's right. There are many, many others. In fact, serotonin is one of only three principal ones. There's norepinephrine and there's dopamine. There are lots of other neurotransmitters that don't have even as prominent names as those, but also play a role. Things like acetylcholine, glutamate, just to name a couple. Now, as far as not knowing entirely how antidepressants actually work, that we don't have all the answers yet, well, yes, that's true, but I want you to know that we do know a lot more than what is mentioned in this article. While there's a lot that we don't know, uh, we do know more than what is said here. Uh, Let me try to explain this to you. First of all, Let's just take the SSRIs, the Selective Serotonin Reuptake Inhibitors. And by the way, this is another myth that the lay media perpetuates. It equates SSRI with antidepressant. In other words, they would have you think that all antidepressants are SSRIs. This is absolutely not the case. There are about a half a dozen SSRIs, so clearly if you look at 
the most new modern antidepressants. Those have been out since 1988. Most of them are SSRIs, but in fact, there are SNRIs, serotonin and norepinephrine reuptake inhibitors, and there are five of those on the market. And then there are several miscellaneous antidepressants, which defy categorization, like Welbutrin, Remeron, Brintelix, and Vibrid, just to name a few. <clears throat> so, really, that's another myth the media perpetuates. Um, a lot of those antidepressants don't work on serotonin pathways at all, chiefly Welbutrin. So, let's take another one of these points. Um, the antidepressant bashing critiques that she mentions, there are too many people on them who don't need them. Well, there may or may not be something to that. Uh, it probably is often the case that physicians, including primary care physicians, who have too many patients to see in too little time, don't or can't take enough time to fully investigate a patient's complaints. Uh, lab tests and physical exam look normal, yet the patient doesn't feel well. Therefore, they conclude the patient must be depressed and or anxious and give them medication. Now, are there some of those patients who don't really need to be on medication? Of course, but probably a lot of them do. Now, <clears throat> there should be, as we talked about before, better and stronger consideration to who needs them and why. It should be something taken drastically, not something done cavalierly, and should only be given to people who have very serious functional impairment, but also based on a proper diagnosis. Then the other critique. They don't work at all, and patients only benefit from a placebo effect. Well, again, there was also this publication many years ago looking at the whole gamut of antidepressant drug trials done uh, in clinical research, usually done by pharmaceutical companies trying to bring these drugs to market. And someone took a look and said, hey, look, in most of the cases, the placebo did as well as the drug. There wasn't that much of a difference. Well, this assertion has long since been debunked, but the criticism persists. The reality is there are many, many obstacles to besting a placebo in an antidepressant trial. The placebo effect or the positive belief that something will work actually brings about symptomatic relief is no stronger in any field of medicine than in psychiatric drug trials. The fervent belief that something you take may help your mood improve is very, very powerful. So when you have a strong placebo effect Regardless, uh, it is harder for the medication to overcome that. Furthermore, there are a lot of flaws inherent in how psychiatric drug trials and antidepressant drug trials in particular are conducted. There are unfortunately and un in, uh, unintentionally perverse incentives for patients in these trials to report improvement, uh, whether they actually feel better or not. Because while in the trial, they get remuneration for participation, for their transportation to and from the clinical trial center. They get free physical exam and lab work. And most of all, 
they get regular and lengthy contact with caring health professionals who have a vested interest in how they're feeling. Now, like it or not, this is going to skew the outcome of the trials in favor of people reporting improvement, even on placebo. So this is a big reason why so many of those trials resulted in the placebo looking darn good compared to the real medication. Um, it turns out that if you look at people who have the most severe cases of depression, and there are rating scales that we have where we can measure this, uh, there is definitely a decided effect of medication that is noticeably and significantly better than placebo. Uh, so I think it's harder to see a difference when the depression is mild or moderate uh, than it is when the depression is severe. Uh, but in any case, the article was wonderful. It covered so much. And uh, for me, it was very validating because I've often used a lot of these points in my work with patients. Everything from comparing uh, using medication to treat it to using medication for diabetes to encouraging people to try different ones and, and not give up uh, to working them through side effects to discouraging thinking of it as an addiction uh, so it was excellent and I thank Sarah Klein for this article and I enjoyed very much bringing it to you and enjoyed spending this time with you hope you found it interesting and informative and I hope you have a wonderful stress-free week till I'm with you again next week but if not then you need to call Dr. Scott good night and thanks for listening you're listening to America's Webradio.com the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening.